You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our worship. We're going to go to God's Word today in um, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse verse 19. Let's ready our, our hearts to receive God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. As I mentioned, uh, today is the beginning of what has become known as Holy Week, the final week in the life of Jesus on earth. And within this week, we see Jesus's triumphant entry, his humble triumphant entry into Jerusalem, um, the Last Supper with his disciples, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And while our passage today doesn't directly reference or reflect the events of Palm Sunday, there's some relevant correlation here. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is welcomed into the city. He is worshiped. He is recognized by the crowds that were gathered as the promised Messiah who was to come into the world and to give his life for, um, for the sins of God's people. And yet, in just a week's time, he is betrayed, he is abandoned, and he is disowned by everyone. And we're encouraged on Palm Sunday to stand firm in our faith, to recognize that our hearts are often uh, fickle, that uh, we have a vulnerable endurance, we have vulnerable character, we have vulnerable uh, passion for Christ, and we are to be made aware that in this life there's struggle, and we are to hold fast to our confession, to trust in Christ even when things become difficult. And this really is the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. As these Christians, these new Christians, are feeling challenged and they're considering wandering from the faith, going back to the old covenant ritual of worship because they feel exposed, they feel vulnerable, they feel tempted in their walk. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, stand firm, don't deny Christ, trust in him, be courageous. And so he's writing to Christians in danger of forgetting and forfeiting and compromising the truth of the gospel to go to a place of comfort, a place of ease, a place that's easier. And so to apply what we've been teaching, the writer of Hebrews really builds what I like to call a, a lettuce salad, right? A lettuce salad, right? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our faith and let us stir up one another. I thought that was really funny. It's a lettuce salad. So in here, he tells us, this is how we do this. This is how we can guard our lives and our hearts from becoming like these people who 
neglected their faith, who neglected Christ, who were tempted. We're, we're prone to wander. We're prone to drift. And he's been writing a great deal. He's explaining about how Jesus is better. He's better than all things and all people for all time. But yet when challenges come into our life, we're tempted to, to forfeit and to wander from that. And the, the Christian life is not just about knowing things, right? It's not just about this transfer of information, about knowing things about Jesus and what he has done and who he is. It is about life transformation, it's about being made new. And so here we see in chapter 10, for the first time, a transition from telling all of us the information about Christ to now applying it to our life. So what do we do in light of all that? He starts out our passage with the word therefore. And maybe you've heard this said before, whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask ourselves, what is it there for? And the first nine chapters has all been about, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he has done. Here are the blessings that come to us who trust in him. So what do we do in light of that? How do we live? And here we see these three invitations and exhortations. And for the first time in their lives, these Hebrew Christians had, they had unhindered access to the presence of God. They had forgiveness. They had the love of God. How are they to act? And, and we are in that same place. We have this unhindered access to relationship with God. We have the full promise of forgiveness. We have the presence of God. How are we to act in light of all that? Well, let's walk through it together. The first invitation is to let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. What does it mean to to draw near, to move towards God? First of all, we've learned in this series through the Old Testament covenant worship uh, it was, seems like this movement towards God, right? You have the tabernacle worship. The people of God were to come and, and offer their sacrifices to God. The priest would take the sacrifices. There was this curtain around the tabernacle. Then there was the inner courts. And then there was a sacrifice with a bonfire. And then there was a water basin to wash. And then there was this first curtain. And then there was another curtain. And then there was the, the most holy place. We've talked about all of that. And everything was a movement towards God. And all of that was to show, if there was a sign again, uh, up on the front of the doors of the tabernacle, it might as well have read, access denied or access restricted. Everyone would know like to get close to God was not something you just woke up in the morning and did. And the common people couldn't do it. it not even the common priests could do it, but only the, most, the, the great high priest could enter into the most holy place. And even there, it was the symbolic presence of God, not the immediate presence of God. Normal people couldn't approach God and they knew this. Access to God was something reserved for one person, the great high priest, and only once a year. It's a privilege to be in the presence of God. It is a privilege to draw near to God, knowing that as we draw near, judgment doesn't await us, but the mercy and grace of God who desires to help us in a time of need. So we are to draw near with confidence, with our hearts sprinkled clean, our conscience sprinkled clean, drawing near to God before Jesus was a restricted activity. And here's the connection we're meant to make here. Before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and entered into heaven, relationship with God was only promised and symbolized. 
It was only promised and symbolized. It wasn't real. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't fully realized. But this promise and symbol became a reality when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, as the scriptures tell us, on our behalf, for us. It means that for those who come to God through Jesus Christ, now have fellowship with God, not in a symbolic way, but in a real sense, in a real way. So what does it look like for us to draw near? Today, in our life, what does it look like to draw near to God? The clue is in this phrase, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. So before the priests were to draw near to God, they had to sprinkle themselves with the blood of bulls and goats as a way of symbolizing the, the sprinkling clean or the atonement of their own sins. And so in order to come close to God, they had to be made clean. And now the author is saying, because Jesus died for your sins and rose again and is in heaven today, your hearts have been sprinkled clean. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, their hearts are inwardly clean from a guilty conscience. We come and we approach God with a conscience that has been cleared. A record of sin wiped clean. Memory of our sin, no more. This is amazing. The heart represents the whole inner life of a person. It, there must be this inner sincerity from, from uh, one's whole uh, being. One must be true, completely genuine as we come to God, knowing that Jesus died for us, that we're guilty of sin, that we've sinned against God, but because of Jesus, we approach him as innocent. This is King David's cry in Psalm 51 when he says this in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. David cries out for forgiveness of sins. He cries out for something that every person needs. Not new behavior, not a new attitude, not new habits. He needs a new heart. And he says, only you can give me that. Only you can give me the very thing that I need. I need a completely new heart. The world says, follow your heart. The Bible says, you need a new heart. Because to follow our own heart will lead us just away from God. It'll lead us away from his fellowship. And that's exactly what we are given is a new heart in Christ. We can clean ourselves on the outside. We can change our habits and our actions, but only Jesus can clean us on the inside. You know, we can turn over a new leaf in our life. We can turn over a new chapter in our life. We can say, I'm going to be better. I'm going to do things different. But when we do that, when we trust in our own self-sufficiency and our own righteous works to draw near to God with a clear conscience, we're being like the Hebrews who've drifted away from the gospel that they're being warned against in our passage, going back to old ways to find God. He transforms us. He cleanses us. He changes our heart. And with this new heart, with this whole heart, we can now approach God with full confidence that he receives us because of Jesus. How many of us at times feel like we're on probation when we sin? 
I know Jesus forgives my sin, but I know that I, I have sin in my life, and, and this week was really rough, and, and I have a memory of all the things that I did that I know I shouldn't have done and said and felt and desired. And I know that God loves me because the Bible says he loves me, and I know he forgives me, but I still feel dirty. And I still feel like I have to, I'm on kind of probation, and I need to spend some time getting my life together so that when I do approach God with my whole heart, I know I'm not being a fake or a fraud, and I feel more confident to do that. This is actually inviting us into something completely different, that there isn't a probationary time, that we are actually sprinkled clean, and when, because of what Jesus did for us, we present our whole heart to him. He gives us a new heart. and We come to his throne of grace, and he helps us in our time of need. Why would we give that up? Why would we neglect that? So what do we do in light of all that Jesus has done for us? We start moving towards him. We bring our whole life, our whole heart with full passion and confidence, knowing that he cares for us. To draw near to God today is a, it's a movement of our affections, our intentions, our actions, our desires, our hopes, our loves, our ambitions. It's, it's to come to God with all that we feel and all that we fear and all that we hope for, it is to come sincerely and truly, completely bringing to him all that we are, knowing that he doesn't reject us, knowing that he receives us in Jesus Christ. This first way is we are told how to respond to the supremacy of Christ because Christ is all and in all and through all, because he's better than all things and all people for all time, we can draw near to God. The second is to hold fast to this confession of hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So if the first application is to start moving, the second application is stay still. <laughs> the Bible is, is not very easy to understand sometimes, is it? It's kind of the opposite exhortation as the first one. The first one is move, move towards God, move, move. The second one is plant your feet, stay still, stop moving, stand firm. But there's good reason why we see these opposite, opposite commands here. As we move towards God, we are to be on guard against distractions that tempt us from wandering from him. That's what we're encouraged to do here. Holding fast to our confession is actually a, a symptom of drawing near. The more near we draw to God, the more uh, we give God our whole heart, the more we will be able to stand firm from all the temptations around us that cause us to drift. The more that our mind and heart is focused on God and what he has done for us and his love for us and his affection for us, the more we will be able to notice the things that tempt us and to stand firm against them. We're encouraged in chapter 2 to pay attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift from it. Because if we drift from it, Hebrews tells us what hope is left for us, what sacrifice is left for us. If we drift from Jesus, there remains nothing to save us. And so in wanting to drive home this importance of paying close attention to our life and our hearts and our confession of our hope, the things we believe, the author uses this metaphor of a ship drifting off course. A little distraction in your life doesn't feel like much. It doesn't feel like much of a compromise. A little bit more distraction doesn't feel like much of a compromise, but you do it over and over again. Before you know it, you are miles away from your desired destination. You feel miles away 
from God. Drifting happens easily, we are told, and it happens without us realizing it. And one day we wake up and we're the person that we swore we would never be. And in each of our hearts, there is a part of us that is drawn to things other than Jesus. Left to ourselves, we will drift because there is this headwind in our hearts and there's a headwind in the world that is constantly pushing away, pushing us away from where Jesus wants us to go. Do you realize that we need to be proactively alert in our hearts? Otherwise, we will revert to greed. We will revert to pride. We will revert to sexual immorality, to hatred of others. All the characteristics that define a person whose heart is far from God. So how can we prevent that? How can we stand firm and prevent ourselves from drifting like a ship that has gone off course? Hebrews tells us, and it's beautiful. We've actually seen it before in chapter six. We are told this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Would you look at that for a second? Chapter two, we're told, don't drift like a boat. Chapter six, we're told, Jesus is your anchor. Chapter 10, we're told, hold tight to that anchor. So maybe the Bible is actually not so hard to understand at times. Do you see this beautiful thread throughout the book of Hebrews? We have this headwind. We have a heart that's prone to drift. But Jesus is like this sure and steadfast anchor that we are to hold tight to, that we are to anchor ourselves to. It's quite beautiful, isn't it? Life is difficult. Life is painful. Life is filled with sorrows and distractions and temptations. But we do not need to be like ones that are pushed around by the storms of life. We can be anchored to our hope in Christ. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. We have a hope that is, as our Bible tells us, sure and steadfast, will not let us down, will not disappoint, will not grow weak. You are only as secure in your life as the thing that you hold on to. And if that thing is vulnerable, if it is weak, if it is insecure, then your life is also insecure. If the thing, the anchor of your life is your, is your, is your money, your wealth, your reputation, if it is the, the approval of others, it, if, if it is the, uh, the obedience of your children or the affection of your spouse, all of those things that are so vulnerable can be gone in a moment. But if our anchor is Christ, who has promised to be sure, steadfast, and always faithful, then we are as secure as he is in the love of God. God is faithful. Our passage reminds us God is faithful. We have him as an anchor in our life. Let us hold fast in verse 23 without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is the reason for which we should hold on to Christ. He doesn't give up. He doesn't fail. He is faithful. Holding fast to the confession, what does that mean, the confession of our hope? It means that we are to live by faith and not by sight. 
It means we are to live today as if we believe everything that we have confessed in our life as a believer in Christ. What do we confess? We confess lots of things. We confess that we are in need of God's grace, that he has given it to us, that we are saved and forgiven, that we are righteous because Christ is righteous, that we are held tight in his hands and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are told that he remembers our sins no more. He holds our future in his good plan. Okay, so live like that's true. What are the things in your life that cause you to start to waver in that confession of your hope? Well, life is difficult. People do mean things to us. People betray us. People hurt us. The life is cruel. We have this uh, temptation within us. We tell our things lies all the time. We believe uh, things that are not true. Jesus is greater than all things and all people for all times. And this is the great little detail of our passage that will change our perspective a little bit. We are reminded where that anchor is that we are meant to hold on to. When you think of a boat in the middle of a storm that casts its anchor, it goes down into the sea and it hits the earth, right? And that is what keeps it steadfast. We are told this little detail that's so important that should change our perspective. Where is the anchor in our heart? It's not on the earth. It's actually in heaven. And so it's kind of upside down. Our hope is not that God would allow us to be well-balanced people on this earth. Our hope doesn't rest in the fact that we will be the mother, the father, the parent, the spouse, the worker, the, the citizen, all the things that we hope to be because our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven and the anchor is in heaven, not holding us down to the earth, but holding us in Christ where our identity is. When life gets difficult, the goal is not to be a better human here on earth, but to know that our hope is in Christ as heavenly children of God. So we have seen a couple movements so far, right? A movement towards God. This is, the, uh, this is how we respond to all that God has told us through Jesus. What are we to do? We are to move towards God, knowing that he receives us because of what Christ has done. We are to stand firm in our faith, and now we see another kind of movement, a movement towards others. Move towards God, stand firm in the confession of your faith, and move towards others. This is every pastor's favorite passage. Go to church. <laughs> I'm kidding. Not kidding. This <laughs> this command and exhortation has been more ignored or compromised in our generation maybe than in many before ours. Many have people have stopped going to church because of the pandemic. Estimates nationwide show that as many as 30% of all church-going Christians stopped going to church in the last two years. Now, my aim is not to lay on the guilt of this portion of the sermon. After all, you're here. <laughs> so it's like I'm preaching to the choir, right? But here's the point in all of these three exhortations. Here's the point. A person who does not draw near to God with assurance of the grace that they have in Jesus Christ is in serious trouble. 
A person who does not guard against the challenges of this life and the challenges to their faith is in serious trouble. And a person who does not make it their life's habit to gather for regular worship, well, that's okay. What is the point? That person is in serious trouble. So we'll see you all next week. Let's pray. (laughs) We need all three, don't we? Which parts of the Bible do we get to compromise? Which parts do we get to say, but, but I have other things going on, but it's okay. Because I, which ones do we get to make excuses for? Because here, there's no distinction of value between the three. We move towards God or we're in trouble. We, we, we stand firm in our faith or we're in trouble. We stay connected in worship with God's people or we are in trouble. But what about the public worship here is, is in mind? It's it's really the previous nine chapters of Hebrews has, it has, is in mind here. And essentially, there is this mention of this deep and long you know, exhortation on the ritual of worship. The details of the old covenant worship. Look at all that the people of God had to do. All of these rituals, all these movements towards God, all these sacrifices and all of these rules. And Hebrews is saying, okay, the, the external rituals are gone, but what they pointed to is even more important than ever. It all pointed to this communion with God, communion with God's people. So much of the ritual has changed, but now we have actually better worship than ever because of Jesus. The purpose of our worship stays the same, but how we worship is radically different. Gathering for worship was and still is an occasion for the public recital of God's covenant faithfulness and love. Why do we gather? What's the purpose of coming together today? It is to say publicly, in a world that rebels against God, it is to say publicly, God, you are faithful. God, you are loving. God, you are worthy of all the praise. You are worthy of me getting up in the morning. You're worthy of my inconvenience. You're worthy of it all. And when we get together, when God's people got together and talked of God's faithfulness, it was a way of sharpening one another in their faith. When we sing, we are singing for all to hear. We are being encouraged in our faith. We are being strengthened in our weaknesses. We are being reminded of the truth. And so we're careful about the words that we sing. I know James gets lots of requests about songs to sing. And he's so good at picking the right songs and the, good, the, the gospel true songs, the ones that affirm what God has really done and said. There's been times he has said, hey, I got this recommendation for this song. I'm like, are you going to do it? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, because it's not true. <laughs> and I'm like, good answer. It's not what the Bible says. Things that we say when we... This is all. We open up our Bibles. We sing our songs. We open up our hearts. Why? Because God is faithful. What, what, is it, what are we doing here? It is to tell of God's faithfulness. But that's not all that happens. It isn't all about talking of God's faithfulness. When we gather, we do a lot of things, none of them perfect. 
But there are two reasons why we gather. One, it's a way of affirming God's faithfulness and telling of all of his good works. And the second, it is a way of God's people to affirm their devotion to him. What was commanded in the law regarding this worship and this offering to God when people gathered was never make your affirmation of praise to God and never make your affirmation of your devotion to God in private. There are a lot of things that God's people ought to do privately. We're even commanded of some of the things. There are some things that we are to do individually. And then there are some distinct actions and activities that are to happen communally many of which that happen uniquely and distinctly here on Sunday morning. The gathering for praise, the gathering for confession of sin and confession of faith. The silent prayers, the spoken prayers, the reading of God's word, the meditation on it in our hearts, and our confession of how we will live, all of that happening and the, and the celebration of the meal together cannot be done in isolation. The old covenant rituals were meant to communicate what God requires of his people. But the old covenant rituals were, they were flawed. They weren't perfect. They could not accomplish the kind of fellowship with God and with God's people that, that they desired, that God desired. But Jesus accomplishes all of that. He gives us full access to God and he gives us access to one another. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't give that up. Don't neglect that. He offers his own blood, his own sacrifice, not so that we could be alone, but so that when we do gather, we would have true assurance of God's love for us, our forgiveness of sins, true confidence that he receives our prayers, and true encouragement in our faith as we are sharpened and encouraged by one another. So the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians, these new Christians, had fallen into a trap, this legalistic trap by placing their hope in the ritual of worship. And what I don't want to do this morning is do the same with you all, thinking that by just attending in person is what is at aim here. That would be just another ritual that we would anchor our hope in, but that is not it at all. The last thing we want to do is fall into a legalistic trap, as if to say that our gathering makes us right with God. That saying words on a screen makes us right with God. That listening to the passage makes us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. But our motivation for gathering has now changed. We gather for the purpose of recounting God's blessings through Christ and the strengthening of our faith, of our hope, and our love. Some aspects of our life are meant to be expressed individually but these distinctly Christian activities of life can only be developed in fellowship with others. You ever meet up with somebody, you run into somebody and they say, oh, I thought about you this week and I thought about texting you and I never did and I just wanted you to know that. It's like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for not doing that. It's like, if you love somebody, if you care about somebody, it, it, it almost hurts more when someone says that. It's like, how can we love, how are we, how can we fulfill God's commands to love one another in isolation? 
How can we obey God's commands to engage in his mission in isolation? How can we obey God's commands to sing of his praises in the fellowship of his people in isolation? How can we take part in the meal of Christ alone? We are created to love God and others, and this is something we cannot do in isolation. God's people were never meant to think of themselves in autonomous terms, but a part of a family who sacrifices for one another, stirs up one another in love and good works. We are to be one another's cheerleaders in our faith. When we are hurting, we are to remind one another of what Jesus has done for us and to say, you are not alone. You are loved. You are cared for. The regular gathering for worship with God's people on the Sabbath was so vital to the central identity of the people of God and believers in Christ that the author of Hebrews considers every Christian that he is speaking to and writing to in one of two ways. One, they're either gathering for worship regularly with the people of God to sing of God's praises and affirm their covenant vows to him, or they've lost their salvation. Yikes. <laughs> so if you're not here this next week, we know. <laughs> the author brings our attention to this. And this is, I mean, that's radical, right? That's like, whew, that's bizarre. Do we think of it that way? I mean, of course not, right? Because just attending doesn't make us like, that doesn't secure our salvation. Jesus does. But, but there is something so tied to our identity in Christ is our identity with the body of Christ. And he says, this ought to be your habit. And I actually like this. I like that he says, and please take a deep breath here, okay? Some of you have neglected this habit. See, he walks away from this legalistic way of gathering. But we ought to consider that things come up, right? There are good reasons not to gather. We should gather un un unless there's times when we, when we can't or we shouldn't. But is it your habit? When we know what God's calling us to, we know what he's provided, the blessings he's provided for our gathering, the only barrier in our way then is desire. The only barrier because God has given us full access, the only barrier most of the time is just, we'd rather do something else. Do you gather for worship when you have nothing else going on, or do you gather for worship as an act of priority, purpose, calling, and conviction? I think that's what's in mind here. Talking about habit, we know what habits are, right? Sometimes there's things that happen and come up, we can't do it. Most of the time, we just simply don't do it because we have something else going on. What are we more prone to do? Say no to the gathering of worship or no to the things that prevent us from gathering for worship? I'm really excited about preaching this portion. Can you tell? But listen, but not for that reason. This is the reason why I'm really excited. And this is where I'll close. The author of Hebrews has been spending nine chapters telling us in every way possible in so many ways and metaphors, in so many analogies and pulling so many verses out of the Old Testament to tell us this wonderful thing. Look at how God loves us through Jesus. And he has exhausted everything he can 
to just communicate to us in so many ways. Would you look at how God loves us? Would you just look at how he loves us? Look at what he has done. Look at how, what he has provided for us. Look at how he has opened up the way for confident relationship with him. Look at how he has never failed us. Would you look at what God has done? And in nine chapters, virtually no imperatives given, no to-do list, no application for how we are to respond. Just nine chapters of just look at how he loves us and be in awe of God. And then in 10, he says, okay, I just have three applications. Really quick. Draw near to God. Hold fast your faith. Stir up one another towards love and good works. There's no reason that we should feel, oh my goodness, just rules upon rules upon rules. No, no, no. Let's look at the love of God and let's live in light of what he has done. And because of that, would you consider what God is calling you to and how you might respond, not in order to stand in awe of God, not in order to be accepted by God, but because of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, would you consider these three things? What would it look like for you to draw near to God today in confidence? What would it look like to stand firm against the temptations in your life? What would it look like to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet with one another as is the habit of some, but gathering together and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are good invitations. Let's consider them.